Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the seventh Sunday of Easter, May 29th, 2022, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have any questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the gospel lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, can be found on page 1680 of your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will come to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them." Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The words that Jesus speaks in our gospel lesson this morning are the conclusion of what many in the church call his high priestly prayer. In fact, some of your study Bibles might label all of chapter 17 as such, Jesus' high priestly prayer. This chapter is the end of a section in John's gospel that is sometimes called the farewell discourse. And that starts a few chapters earlier with the washing of the disciples' feet. I only bring this up for context and to establish a bit of a timeline for us to consider because John's gospel is unique. John is the only one of the four Gospels that doesn't feature or focus on the establishment of Holy Communion at the Last Supper. Rather, chapters 13 through 17 happen concurrently with the Last Supper, and that is John's focus. If you look ahead to chapter 18, John, or Jesus departs for the Garden of Gethsemane, is betrayed by Judas, and then is arrested. Which makes Jesus' words in our gospel lesson, John 17, 20 through 26, incredibly important. Jesus isn't preparing his disciples for his death and resurrection. He's been doing that his entire teaching ministry. Jesus, in these last few verses of his high priestly prayer, is preparing his disciples and us, as he prays for us too, for his ascension. The church celebrated his ascension this past Thursday. When Jesus prepares his disciples for his ascension, Jesus is particularly concerned about unity 
in the church. Now, the topic of Christian unity has been an important, intriguing, and popular topic throughout Christian history. It was discussed at length during the Reformation, especially since from the outside looking in, the church looked as if it was beginning to fracture. And in fact, the Roman Catholics accused the Lutherans of fracturing the church, which is why in the Lutherans' presentation of their identity, they make great pains in the Augsburg Confession and other documents to make sure they tied into the historic Christian church. Since the Reformation, Christian unity has been talked about at length, especially because of the multiplicity of denominations and Christian groups that have arrived on the scene since the Reformation. But, and maybe especially recently, it's been talked about on a granular level, as individual congregations decide what it means to look like being unified. Perhaps this is due to the rise of massive individual megachurches that, that number membership in the thousands instead of in the tens like us. Perhaps it's due to the fact that most people who attend church do not have as strong of denominational ties or to a, ties to a doctrinal tradition as in years and centuries past. 50 years ago, 75 years ago, you went to a Lutheran church because you were Lutheran. You went to a Methodist church because you are Methodist. Now, when people come to church, they have no idea what any of that means. They go to a church because it's close, or because they could check it out online, or whatever the case might be. With that in mind, the church likes to talk about unity. In fact, I would say that today the church excels at talking about unity without doing much of anything to actually create unity. And so now, our task this morning is to turn our eyes back to John 17, to Jesus and his high priestly prayer and his words and desire for Christian unity. And in doing so, we're going to see what he is saying and what it looks like how unity might occur. And to do that, we're going to use a little bit of a unique sermon structure this morning. There are at least four times that Jesus mentions unity in our gospel lesson. We're going to identify them right away. We're not going to use them as the points for the sermon. And then we're going to spend the rest of the time, our, our time together this morning, trying to tie it all together. So first, Jesus' four appeals for unity. Jesus' first appeal for unity happens in verses 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. This first appeal to unity will call, for the sake of those who take notes and want landmarks in the text, we'll call this Jesus' Trinitarian appeal for unity. Jesus' appeal for unity is based on the unity of the Trinity. The unity he has with the Father and that the Father has with him. Jesus' second appeal for unity is verses 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you love me. This will call Jesus' appeal for unity because of glory. 
The glory of God results in the unity of the church. The third appeal for unity is verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Here, Jesus' desire for unity is based on his presence, the appeal to his presence, that in unity, the church may be with him. And finally, verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these that know you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This final appeal for unity, Jesus bases on God's name. So those are the four appeals to unity Jesus makes before God. In these prayers... Jesus envisions Christian unity based on the existence and model of the Trinity, the glory of the Father in the Son, his own presence with the church, and God's name. Before we look what this means about what Christianity or Christian unity is, now we must consider what Christian unity isn't. And this is where the church begins to go off the rails. Christian unity is not based on our efforts, at least not on the front end of things. Most of the time when modern authors and speakers and teachers are talking about Christian unity, they have some sort of kumbaya-ish idea of why can't we all just get along? That's what Christian unity looks like to most people. If we just set aside our differences, we'll have unity. Well, maybe. If our differences are petty squabbles based on sinful pride, then they're absolutely right. And to give them just a little bit more credit, our sinful natures are incredibly capable of producing petty squabbles based on pride. We do that in spades. Talk to anyone you know who's actually fought in a church about the color of the carpet, and you'll know exactly what we're talking about, okay? But what we should be concerned about is that oftentimes the differences certain Christian leaders that Christians want or that they want Christians to lay aside aren't petty squabble. They're important truth claims that flow from how we understand scripture. And these speakers and writers and leaders, their concept of Christian unity is actually just a loosely based system of quasi-Christian morality where everyone is nice, everyone is happy, the women are strong, the men are good-looking, and the children are above average. What this actually ends up being is not Christian unity, but rather Christian uniformity. If we all look the same, and talk the same, and act the same, look, we're unified. But what this actually does is veneer over some deep-seated divisions that people refuse to actually deal with. And their answer to Christian unity is not to believe more, but to believe less. And when that ends up happening, the divisions end up being rifts that turn into chasms because we end up ignoring them rather than dealing with them, all for the sake of unity. That's not unity. So what is Christian unity? 
If we go back to Jesus' four appeals to unity in our gospel lesson, the Trinity, the glory of God, his own presence, and God's name, what we will see is that these appeals flow from and are based on God's identity and God's activity. In short, Christian unity is based on the truth of God communicated to us in Scripture. Now, coincidentally, that is the exact same definition that I use for the word doctrine. Now, this isn't an excuse for me to be more obnoxious. I'm almost always obnoxious. I don't need an excuse. This, however, is incredibly important for unity from my perspective. Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior, wants his disciples to be unified around the reality of who he is and what he's done for us. Because that's the only reality that where we can overcome our differences as sinners because it's the only reality where sin is forgiven. The reality of God's identity and God's activity in Jesus Christ is the only reality that allows us to overcome our differences and overcome our faults. Each one of these differences, as I mentioned, our sinful differences, as well as our created differences, our uniqueness as God's creatures, those differences are precisely what Satan the world and our own sinful nature used to divide and tear us apart. But in the teaching of the Trinity, we learn to and embrace not only Jesus' divinity, that he is the Savior who died in our place and is simultaneously the God of the universe, but also we learn that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the three persons of the one true God, are united in purpose to save us and deliver us into eternity. That's why the Trinity matters. In the Gospel of John, Jesus teaches us in John chapter 3 that the height of the glory of God is the cross, where in history and for all time, Jesus paid the price to satisfy God's wrath against our sin so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be restored to a right relationship with God. The glory of God is that we would be united with God so that we can be united with each other. The reality of Jesus' presence is that Jesus is present with his church right now. Not because we earnestly and sincerely desire him to be present. Not because we earnestly and sincerely desire to put ourselves in the heavenly throne room which is all great, but Jesus is present with his church because he is present as the church gathers together. Jesus is present with his church because he is present when his word is preached. Jesus is present with his church because he is present when the sacraments are administered. Jesus is present with his good news. Finally, Christians are unified around the name of God. This is the name of God that he gave to Moses in Exodus 3, where he says, I am who I am. 
The name of God reminds us that God exists, that He is there, that God is not some abstract philosophical notion to be trifled with, but that God is here. But the name of God is also the name of God given to Jesus. God saves, which reminds us what God has done for us because of Jesus. And then finally, Jesus appeals to Christian unity through God's name because the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the name that has been given to each one of us in baptism as God reminds us daily that in Christ, he has adopted us as one of his own children. And so, dear saints, Jesus wants us his church to be unified. Now we pause and we think. In spite of all of our differences, in spite of all of our disagreements about how this, that, or the other thing must be done, and in spite of each one of our individual uniqueness, we stand today as a unified church because of what Christ has done for us. We stand today as a church united around the glorious reality of the gospel. So as we prepare for Pentecost next week, when God sends his spirit to the church, and then as we prepare to, an expend, to, extend, uh, to spend an extended amount of time during the church year, to focus on Jesus working in and through his church, we remember right now that the words that Christ prays for his church, the words that Christ prayed for his disciples 2,000 years ago, and the words that he prayed for you 2,000 years ago to prepare us for his ascension, words for your unity, for our unity, those words, as much as any other part of the word of God, are true because Jesus has died for you, because Jesus has risen again for you, and because Jesus has saved you. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.